House Democrats will try to force a vote on the debt ceiling. The government may not be able to pay its bills as soon as June 1. If Congress doesn't allow the U.S. to borrow more money, it would cause economic catastrophe. Now, Republicans want a debt limit increase tied to spending cuts. Democrats want to raise it, but without conditions like Congress did under President Donald Trump. We'll see what happens with the lifting of the debt ceiling. And the man accused of killing five neighbors in Texas was caught last night. The suspect was hiding in a house less than 20 miles from Cleveland where the shooting happened. The family said deputies were slow to respond and there were other early missteps in the investigation like the misspelling of the suspect's name. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates for the 10th time in just over a year and signaled that it will stop hoisting borrowing costs as the economy slows and fears of a recession grow. The Fed's latest move announced at the end of its two-day policy meeting brings the central bank's benchmark interest rate to a level between 5 and 5.25%, the highest level in 16 years. Well, Saturday Night Live and other late-night shows have gone dark. It's the most immediate effect of the Hollywood writer's strike, which started yesterday. Writers are striking over pay, which they say has gotten worse in the streaming era, and other issues, including the use of artificial intelligence to write scripts. The last strike, which started in 2007, lasted 100 days and cost more than $2 billion. Hmm. Last month, Fox executives reviewed a text message that Tucker Carlson sent to his producers in early 2021. In the message, he described himself watching a video of Donald Trump's supporters beating up someone he referred to as an Antifa kid. And he wrote that he had conflicting emotions, hinting at his dismay that he had found himself rooting for the mob against the man, hoping they'd hit him harder, kill him. He also asserted that, quote, jumping a guy like that is dishonorable. Obviously, it's not how white men fight. After seeing the alarming message, Fox planned to retain a law firm to investigate Carlson's behavior. And as they say, the rest is history. Representative Colin Alred, a Democrat from Texas, will challenge Senator Ted Cruz for his Senate seat in 2024. In a video posted on social media, Alred showed footage from January 6th of the insurrection, insurrection in which a pro-Trump mob overran the U.S. Capitol. Alred said in the video he texted his wife to say, whatever happens, I love you. Alred slammed Cruz for voting against the certification of election results that day and for hiding in a storage closet during the attack. Ben Vincent III, provost at Case Western University and a former administrator at universities in D.C. and Maryland, was announced as Howard's 18th president since its founding in Washington, D.C. shortly after the Civil War. He will take the hymn on September 1st. The Howard presidency poses many challenges, including working with Congress to maintain an annual appropriation of more than $250 million a year and addressing a black male student shortage. More than 70% of Howard's 900 or 9,800 undergraduates were women last year. Hmm. Joe Biden's uh, White House may get a jolt as prosecutors are making a final decision on whether they will charge his son, Hunter Biden, with tax and gun related violations. 
the culmination of a four-year investigation that Republicans have sought to portray as evidence that the Biden family is corrupt. According to sources, the Justice Department is meeting with representatives for Joe Biden, and typically this sort of meeting is the last step before there is a potential indictment, and it comes towards the end of an investigation. You are watching and listening to Reva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Reva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. I'm joined today by two brilliant contributors, Dr. Omikongo Dabinga. He's a lecturer at American University, and he's the author of a new book on the shelves in July entitled How to Combat Racist Stereotypes and Why It Matters. Also joining us is Dr. Michael Fontroy. He's a professor of policy and government at George Mason University. And in my second hour, I'm asking the question, are Black babies and children being illegally taken away from Black parents and placed in foster care? I'm going to talk about the horrifying story of a Dallas couple who had a horrific fight on their hands to be reunited with their infant who was taken away from their home just days after her birth. We're going to get some experts from the Dallas, Texas area to help us understand what happened in that case and answer the question about Black children being at risk from being taken away from parents uh, reported and parents being reported to the Department of, of Children and Family Services. What is happening with Black kids and foster care? But before I bring on my guests, here's what I'm thinking about in real time. This whole week, I am celebrating the culture. Yesterday, I talked about this uh, hamburger a stand owned by a Black woman in Harlem, how it's expanding. And today I'm talking about uh, Army bases and this one in particular, because Fort Lee, Virginia will be officially renamed Fort Greg Adams. Now, this is uh, these the new base is going to be named after two black officers who made significant contributions to the U.S. Army. The post is one of nine Army bases that will be renamed as a process of redesignating bases named after Confederate leaders. At 94 years old, Greg will be the only living person in modern history to have an installation named after him. His military career spans 36 years, and he experienced the challenges of desegregating the armed forces, which began shortly after he enlisted in 1946. After completing officer candidate school in 1949, his first assignment was at Fort Lee in 1950. When he retired in 1981, he was the highest ranking black officer in the U.S. military. And in 1942, Adams served in the newly created Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, where she was later selected to command the first and only unit of predominantly Black women to serve overseas during World War II. She was eventually promoted to Lieutenant Colonel, one of the highest ranks attainable for women during the war. Two other bases in Virginia, Fort A.P. Hill and Fort Pickett, are also scheduled to be renamed by the Congressional Naming Commission. Now, this commission was just established in January of 2021 to remove names, signs, and other items associated with the Confederacy and Confederate soldiers who waged the Civil War largely, and some would say exclusively, 
to protect and expand the transatlantic slave trade. Now, Greg and Adams are heroes and people we should know about and we should be celebrating in real time. I'm super excited to acknowledge them today during my Focus on Culture Week. Uh, when we come forward, Dr. Omikongo Dabinga and Dr. Michael Fontroy help us break down today's trending news and give us their unfiltered opinions. Stay with us right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back and Dr. Omikongo Dabinga, a lecturer at American University and author of a new book, How to Combat Racist Stereotypes and Why It Matters is joining us today, as well as Dr. Michael Fontroy, Professor of Policy and Government at George Mason University. All right, some good news is happening uh, for Howard University. A new president's going to take over the school in September. Now, Dr. Dabinga, you are in D.C., and I know, uh, Dr. Fontroy, you are a former student and faculty at Howard. So let me start with you, Dr. Fontroy. Uh, is this good news that Howard is getting a new president, and do you know uh, I guess it's Dr. Vincent who's coming on board to take over the university. So this is a really big deal. Um, Dr. Ben, uh, Vincent, Vincent is the current provost at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, but he has significant ties to D.C. having worked at George Washington University and having you know, gone to high school in this area. Uh, he's very well regarded. It just so happens that I know a friend of his from undergrad. And everybody I've talked to about him has had a lot of really good things to say. He's coming to the university at a very curious time. At some level, Howard is in ascendancy. Applications are up. Student enrollment is up. A lot of attention is growing for the university, which is a really big deal. So he's coming in an opportunity to really take advantage of that. Having said all that, there's also significant issues on the other side that on the other side of that coin that he's going to have to deal with. There's been deferred maintenance on the physical plan of the campus for years, close to $800 million at this point, and that has to be addressed, uh, quite frankly. Uh, and you pointed this out, the gender imbalance on campus. HBCUs are particularly prone to this, and, you know, I'm also a graduate of Hampton University, and, you know, these institutions have very similar profiles in terms of the gender balance at these institutions. 60 to 70, 75% women, and the balance being men. And when you look at those numbers over the course of years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, you know, a question has to be asked, and that is, you know, who is your, your daughter or your granddaughter, your niece, your goddaughter going to marry if she's interested in a college-educated Black man? So, so I'm not expecting Dr. Vincent to sort of come in and, and fix all of that. But Howard University is sort of the tip of, tip of the spear as it pertains to higher education for Black people in America. And so that is something that's going to have to get some attention. And then finally, I'll just say uh, there is a lot of talent on the faculty there, staff there, uh, and they need some more support. And this is where the fundraising piece comes in. A university president is, is primarily a fundraiser these days. And he's got to be able to do that if he's going to be successful. I'm hoping he is. I'm hoping he does. I love Howard. We want to see it be successful. And uh, so we'll see after how it plays out. 
Yeah, it's interesting that you say that about college professors being fundraisers because I have a couple of friends who are a couple who are uh, presidents now, some who are former presidents. And yeah, those brilliant, some brilliant minds who didn't really do well in that position as president because they were not able to raise the kind of money in these universities. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars you have to raise, uh, you know, for these universities to thrive. Uh, Dr. Dabinga, do you know Dr. Vincent? Uh, you know, any uh, any inside information about him or any, you know, the challenges that Dr. Fyroy talked about that Howard faces? Do you have any insights about those challenges? I'm thinking back to some of the articles recently about, I don't know, some of the kids complaining their cockroach infestation in the dorms and how the dorms are really, you know, dilapidated. So as as you said, Dr. Fyroy, a lot of positive things happening at Howard, but I guess that physical plant issue is real. Uh, and we've seen some pretty negative reports about the school based on those plant issues. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know Dr. Vincent personally, but I definitely have been following, you know, what has been happening at Howard University as it relates to the students. And it's like Dr. Fontroy was saying, at the end of the day, with the new president, when it comes down to the students, they they don't really care. They want what they want. They want their demands met, particularly as it relates to the facilities. We also know that with many HBCUs over the last few, uh, two years or so, there's been issues with bomb threats. And so, you know, safety is a concern. And so even as the, the, the Howard has been on its ascendancy, there are, are real issues as it relates to the student services. And there have been exposés that have been done that have shown how decrepit the, the, the dorm situations are. Um, there was part, you know, it was part of the, the student center got shut down because of student protests and the like. And so he's coming in there with his hand, with his assignment straight out already written for him. And I think that given, I remember when, when Felicia Rashad came there, and everybody was so excited. And then in short order, that comment was made defending Cosby. And so many people just turned on her, you know, really quickly. And some of that stuff can be hard to get over. So I feel like he has a very short time period to really acclimate himself, particularly to the students and show that he's going to be a student advocate. And once he does that, it's going to be better for him to matriculate at that university. And, you know, look, I have two daughters who are considering Howard. One is a freshman in high school. One's a junior in high school. They are Howard's tops on their Choices. And lastly, I will say that given what's going on in some of these other states like Georgia and the like, I think that many students who want to attend an HBCU and have experience might be slower to consider like a Morehouse or a Spelman because we don't know what's going to happen with the 2024 election in Georgia. And they're working to ban the use of, of IDs, private school IDs for voting. So anything can happen. And a study has shown that more students are choosing colleges based on their political uh, perspective of the states. So that could also make Howard more attractive to have even larger applications come in. So, yeah, so let I'm, me just add, may I just add quickly, I was, yeah, on the faculty at, I was on the faculty at Howard from 2013 to 2021 and saw the rise in student applications. And one of the things that came out of that, uh, talking to these students, was that their parents were concerned about their physical safety, that they mm -hmm. weren't sure that sending their kids to predominantly white institutions would be in the physical safe, safe interest of their kids. And so there is a real opportunity for HBCUs uh, throughout the country to sort of build on that and, and be more attractive to students. So, and, and I think that that's one of the reasons why Howard has a larger student population now than at any time in its history. Now, I mentioned at the outset that uh, this was a, a bit of a surprise. And part of that was because there has long been a call among prominent alums that Howard's next president be a woman. 
And outgoing president Wayne Frederick had often talked about that and has and is, is understandably boasted about the fact that seven of the nine colleges and schools in the university are now headed as deans by women. This is a huge thing. And so the expectation was that it was going to be a, a woman as president. And so that didn't happen, which is why it's a bit of a surprise. But I, I will also say I had an opportunity to communicate with a board member who told me that Dr. Vincent came in and blew him away. And they weren't expecting him to be the one, but he came, laid out a plan that was just unstoppable in their mind. And so they went for the candidate that they thought could could deliver. And so, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic about how we're going forward. I will also add, though, turnover in presidencies is at an all-time high. Most presidents in colleges and universities right now are on the job three, four, maybe five years. And so if he can get past his first three years or so, then I think you got a chance for him to have enough runway to do some really good things going forward. So I'm hoping he does and uh, hoping that the university community gets behind him. So, Dr. Pyro, I didn't know that you left Howard just literally. You said 2021, that you were there at the university until 2021. I'm thinking about another friend of mine who was there. I won't name her name, but I, I remember there being some tension so as Howard started to get more attention, whether it was because of Kamala Harris, VP as a graduate, or just kind of the racial reckoning that happened after George Floyd's murder, whatever you, you point to as, as the reason that it became you know, such a focal point as one of the HBCUs and was starting to attract what I'll call these kind of celebrity professors. Uh, I remember talking to a, co- a friend, well, a friend about attention that exists on these campuses when they pay a lot of money to these celebrity professors to woo them to the university with the thought being that because they're celebrities, they can maybe attract more uh, foundation dollars, they can bring in more research dollars, just bring in more donor dollars, period. But how it creates sometimes tension with those professors who've been just, you know, in the trenches making what you know my friend described as subpar standard uh salaries mm-hmm. particularly when you compare it to some of the bigger you know state universities and other universities how does dr vincent deal with that because howard has attracted its share uh, dr dabinga talked about felicia rashad right. uh, so right. it, it uh, has it has its share of celebrity professors yes it, it does and there is something to be said for you know going after so-called big fish but that you know you there's a price that comes with that if you haven't taken care of the fish that are already in your pond. Uh, I have to confess that that's one of the reasons why I I left in 2021. I didn't necessarily want to leave, uh, but I did because I got a better opportunity and didn't have to move to, to take advantage of it. So yes, there's some there there can be some tension, but I will tell you also, the faculty are overwhelmingly committed to the mission of the university, and because they're mission committed. They 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 hang in there because the students are so great. And so uh, real quickly, I I do I don't want to spend the whole time talking about how, but real quickly, this this male imbalance issue that caught my attention too. You talk about women uh having you know opportunity to marry educated black men. I have two daughters, uh, Dr. Dabinga, my daughters are older than yours, so they're already at that stage of my God, where are the black men on college campuses? They happen to be at a, a college in New York. So Dabinga, how do we change this? This, you know, where are the black men? How do we get more black men in colleges, whether it's HBCUs or other colleges? 
It's, it has to be that direct recruitment efforts. And I, I believe that just having college fairs and, you know, coming to the different schools and setting up booths, it, it, it's not enough there. Ha- Whatever is happening, it has to be more. Because even when I was of age of applying to college, that was always a story. I was so this is in the 90s. I was I was told, Howard, you go there. It's going to be that imbalance of women. It's going to be like three women for every every guy. So this has been a, a consistent issue. And I think the only way to change it is going to be hardcore recruiting. I'm also seeing that there are some prominent athletes who are starting to make their way towards uh, Howard and other HBCUs as opposed to some of the the top wider colleges, uh, the uh, PWIs. I think that's also going to make some attention as it relates to this. And we see what's happening with like Howard swim team and the like. I think as the sports start to become more competitive, we saw a player drafted by the by the NFL as well in the last draft this year. I think that is going to start to attract more of the males. Unfortunately, that's more towards sports, but there has to be a stronger recruitment drive as it relates to the benefits of the other great areas that Howard has as, as majors as well. But that could be part of it. And the other yeah. part of it is, and the other part of it is money. Quite frankly, it's very expensive to get a college education in the United States. And I've I've had my heart broken sitting on the other side of my desk in the office, listening to a student tell me they can't stay because they don't have the money. And so we, you know, we as a community, as a village, need to be more purposeful and intentional about making sure we get our kids across the finish line, not just inside the pipeline, but out on the other side. And real talk, that's why I couldn't I couldn't attend Howard. I got in, but the money piece was, was a real challenge. No, it's, it's real. No, it's real. That's an excellent point. And a lot of students end up going to community college and sometimes they never make that transition to a four-year college, so they never get that bachelor's degree. Many now are opting to go online. So colleges are competing too with online institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh the, you don't have the room and board parent, you know, you can stay at home with your parents. Uh, and save that cost. So yes, making college affordable is something that we all should be, uh, you know, thinking about and definitely making a priority in this country. And we know we've seen different proposals by different uh, elected officials or people who want to be elected officials talking about making community college in particular or state colleges free uh, for individuals, particularly individuals whose parents make under a certain amount of money. And I think that's something we should continue to pursue in this country. Uh, Representative Colin Allred, this this is a dynamic young, uh, you know, elected official congressman from Texas. He's a lawyer. He's a former NFL player, outspoken. Just uh, I'm super excited that he's running against Ted Cruz in Texas. But I'm I'm worried or, or I should say worried, but I'm concerned about whether he can cross the finish line. We saw Val Demings. Uh, you know, go after that seat in Florida that uh, Marco Rubio held, $80 million she raised, but she still couldn't beat Marco Rubio in Florida. Uh, When we come forward, I want to talk about can Representative Colin Allred, who seemingly has everything, he's got the full package, he looks good, he sounds great, he's got the perfect resume, he's got, you know, his politics are where they should be. Is he just what the doctor ordered in a state like Texas uh, that has been pretty resistant to uh, statewide Democratic, you know, elected officials doing well. We saw what happened to Beto O'Rourke in Texas. So when we come forward, we're going to talk about uh, Representative Allred's chances of winning that seat. Talk about these uh, writers who are on strike, what that means, not just for writers, but for everybody who has a job where they have to do any thinking. Is AI coming for all of our jobs? Uh, stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. Arriva time is the right time. 
More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, Dr. Omikongo Dabinga is with us in this hour, and he's a senior lecturer at American University. And he's also the author of a new book, and the book is called Lies About Black People. How to Combat Racist Stereotypes and Why It Matters. The book is on bookshelves everywhere you find books this July and pre-orders are available now. Uh, you can find Dr. DeBingo on the social media sites. You can go to a uh, website. Go ahead and drop your website, uh, Dr. DeBingo, so I can let people know where they can pre-order the book. And Dr. Michael Fontroy, Professor of Policy and Government at George Mason University is also with us. I, I wanna talk real quickly about Colin Allred. Uh, Dr. Fontroy, if you think he has a chance of winning this race in Texas, uh, like I said, Valerie, uh, Val Demings raised $80 million and could not beat uh, Marco Rubio in Florida. What do you think might be different in this race? The difference is that uh, Ted Cruz is uniquely unpopular in some parts of the state. He, you know, he's more offensive to, to Texas voters than Marco Rubio was in Florida. And so he has so so Allred has a chance. I'm not saying it's a great chance, but he has a chance, and he probably should do better than Better O'Rourke did in 2018. So uh, Allred ticks a lot of boxes, and he's he's seen as less. He's he's certainly more acceptable to to moderate middle of the road voters in Texas than Better O'Rourke was in 2018. So I think he has a chance. He's getting out early, which I think is very helpful. And he's also running in a presidential re-election year. And while Texas is not going to be competitive in the way that most battleground states will be in 2024, there will be some significant attention as Democrats in Texas continue to move forward in their plan to try to turn Texas blue. It's it's uh, I don't know that Texas is ready yet, but I do think that there will be another step in 2024 to get closer there. And that next step may be enough to bring Colin Allred across the finish line against uh, Ted Cruz. Yeah, uh, what are you thinking, uh, Professor uh, Dabinga? Do, do you feel like uh, this is different? You're right, we saw Beto O'Rourke not once but twice get beat in Texas when the gun issue, the gun control issues should have been top of mind, I thought, to the voters down there, but he just didn't seem to have what it takes to break through. Do you think already it's a different kind of Democrat than uh, Beto O'Rourke? Well, I think, you know, Dr. Fontenoy is absolutely right. You know, the appeal has to be towards the moderates. I believe that one of the reasons Beto O'Rourke lost was because he was painted as an extremist. You know, that particular question was always played over and over again, something to the effect of, hell yeah, we're going to take your guns or something like that. People just have these one liners that they stick with. But we have to be mindful of the fact that and this is one of my challenges when we're talking about Texas, Tennessee, all of these places. You see so many people come out for the rallies, for the marches, for the protests, but not showing up at the ballot box. I remember O'Rourke had a, had a had an event that had over 50,000 people attend uh, uh, 
Cruz had an event that only with Trump there, only 19,000 people attended. And we know many of those folks were from out of state. But who won the election? Because people showed out to vote. But even with that, Cruz won by like two points. As Dr. Fuentes said, he's wildly unpopular. The disparity between the number of votes Abbott got versus what Cruz got is, is monumental. And so Arvid can definitely deal uh, dig into that. But what's really going to matter in addition to the people who come out to the rallies, pro, you know, getting out to actually vote because O'Rourke did out fundraise uh, crews as well. It's going to be if Allred is going to run on the real issues. Yes, he's talked about, you know, I handle tougher opponents and all of that. I'm glad he led with January 6th in his video, but he has to run on guns. He has to run on the woman's uh, right to choose. He has to run on these things. The Democrats in general, they have to embrace the culture wars head on because at least as it relates to the polling, the majority of the things that Democrats want, the majority of American people are in line with in some way, shape or form. And so he has to play moderate. I get that play for the moderates, but he can't do it to such an extent that he loses those who are a little bit more uh, not not on, the, on team uh, moderate. I'm glad you brought that up. It wasn't on my list of things to talk about today, but I was reading an article about Jamal Bowman. Jamal Bowman, you know, straight out of Harlem or straight out of New York. I think he's from Brooklyn, actually. But here's a, a guy who was a uh, football player, raised by a single mother, school teacher, principal. And he is becoming the face now of the squad. And this right. whole article was him saying, look, we've got to be unapologetic about those things that people care about, like gun control. And we have to stop being timid and afraid to take on these tough issues. And we got to call out the BS. So they, there are all these viral videos of him confronting Republicans, getting in their faces, not in a, you know, a threatening way, but in a forceful way, letting them know that, you know, your stance is BS, calling them out on it. And when he had that interaction with the, uh, I think it was the Tennessee lawmaker in the hallway, he said- Oh, uh, Massey. Yes, Massey. Uh, Kentucky. Kentucky, okay. Yes. Jeffries walked by him. And he said, Jeffries just kind of wanted to make sure they weren't throwing any blows. And Jeffries kept, you know, going about his business. He said, you know, Hakeem is more Jay-Z and Bowman described himself more as Buster Rhymes. And he said what he loved about Hakeem Jeffries was that, you know, he lets them be themselves. He's the leader, but he doesn't try to force them to, you know, because Hakeem is all laid back and cool with his New York swag, but that he doesn't, you know, demand that from his membership. But I, I just think I was so glad to hear Bowman say, look, Democrats get tough. That's and right. what you're saying about all red is don't be trying to be all things to all people. That's right. People care about these kids getting gunned down in schools. They care about women. We care about losing our reproductive health rights. You got to take those tough issues on head on stand for something uh, and saying where the American people are, because the American people, all these polls show they are in favor of things that most Democrats are, you know, support. But I think all too often Democrats get afraid. They want to talk about guns. They want to talk about abortion. And they end up not really playing to any base. So, you know, if, if we register votes, if we do what we should do in terms of voter registration, we should not lose races, even in places like Texas. So the, the, I think the big issue for him is going to be how many new voters can he register? Can he motivate the base? Can he motivate young people who still are not voting at full capacity? And if he can do that, I think he has a good shot. I want to talk about Tucker Carlson, uh, Dr. Fontroy. He had an existential crisis, I think. You know, he's watching this Antifa kid 
getting beat. Initially, he's feeling good about it. He's cheering the person on. Yes, beat him, hit him, kill him. Then he starts to ask the question, well, wait a minute, you know, who am I to be wishing death on someone? And then he goes into his whiteness and says, this ain't the way white men fight. What, what, what was going on with Tucker Carlson in that moment? And why is he putting all this in a text message? <laughs> well, let me tell you, I, um, I'm, I am at a loss for words when it comes to try to get inside that dude's head, you know, so I'm not, I'm not going to go too far down that road. But what I will tell you is the, the existential crisis that you describe is really his, him seeing himself as an avatar and the tip of the spear for white nationalism and white supremacy. Right. And so when he says that's not how white men fight, that's, that's somebody in my view who's, who's not really clear on how white men fight. White men fight just like everybody else does. And he seemed to be lamenting the fact that white dudes were jumping this guy and that as if that doesn't really happen. And it all, often always does. Often It often does. So Tucker But Carlson, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, Professor Palmer. Do you think he was saying white men are somehow more noble that, you know, that we yes, don't... Yes, he's saying they're more honorable. People. He's saying they're more right. honorable. Which, but, which which we know is not true. It's ridiculous because January right. 6th, nothing honorable right. about that and nothing honorable about lynchings that took place mm -hmm. in the South and nothing honorable about white men and fighting. They're cowards. And that was jumping this quote unquote kid by definition made you a coward. Right. But yeah, finish. So, I, I just want to make sure we so, were on the same page about right, what. Right. <laughs> oh, no question. I, I think he um, uh, and. And, and I think what we're going to see in the next chapter of his, his evolution will be even more strident and more rigid and more openly white nationalist. Uh, and, and that's unfortunate, but I think that's where we're going with him. He knows he has a brand that does well in a particular space, and he's going to continue to, to, to build that brand to the extent that he can. Yeah, some this is fantasy of some Anglo-Saxon righteousness or, like you said, nobility about white men. What do you make Yes, absolutely. What'd you think about that, uh, Dr. Binger, when you saw that text? I thought that it, would, it revealed uh, who we all knew him to be, as Dr. Maya Angelou said, when people show you who they are, believe them. And so it wasn't surprising to us that he would say, just any of us here, that he would say that. But what I, what I noticed with that is that I don't even believe that that's part of the reason that he, he has gone from Fox. I believe the reason he's gone is because he insulted the executive of Susan Scott and Rupert Murdoch. So despite all of the things he said about other people calling Iranians monkeys, all of the white replacement theory, so on and so forth, it wasn't until he dissed them that this became, that he became a problem. And he started costing them money when this trial started, because really, at the end of the day, people realized that his brand is going to continue to be part of the problem. And so the fact that we... They Fox didn't lose because of their lies about democracy. They lost because that the, the boss was mad. You know? And so there's going to be a replacement for Tucker Carlson. I believe Jesse Waters recently said, like today, uh, who's auditioning for the replacement role. I know illegal immigrants when I see them or something to that extent. So Tucker Carlson insulted the execs. That's why he's gone. But their brand is racism and hate. And as long as you can do that and not cost them money with stuff like Tucker Carlson's doing or sexual harassment trials like Bill O'Reilly. They're going to keep on going with their brand. Rupert Murdoch is the most dangerous threat to a democracy in America. Yeah, and you're right. There's no shortage of people willing to go even further than Tucker Carlson did in terms of spewing that kind of hate and vitriol. And Jesse uh, Waters, as you said, is already saying, you know, sign me up. I'm ready. Uh, yep. When we come forward, we'll talk about these, this, you know, chat bot 
is artificial intelligence coming for all of our jobs? All of us who, you know, went to school and learned how to write a couple of few sentences. And I don't know if we're going to be needed much longer. And this writer's strike is going to tell us a lot about the future of AI and lots of careers, not just in Hollywood. When we come forward right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, uh, Dr. Fontroy, are we going to have jobs in the foreseeable future? Folks like you and me and Dr. Dabinga, we make uh, our living by writing. And a big part of this writer's strike is not just about the streaming services and how they've changed the game in terms of the number of episodes that writers work on or even the money that they get paid, but it's the lack of commitment by the networks to affirm to the writers that they are not going to use these chatbots, this artificial intelligence to rewrite scripts and basically write them out of a job. Ariva, I'm I'm concerned that we'll all be working at Starbucks at some point. <laughs> oh no, Starbucks won't need us. <laughs> the robots so, will be making all the coffee. So, so so listen, you know, this is also an issue in academia. Yep. You know, we're worried about students submitting papers that they just type in a few keywords and, and push out a paper and give it to us, you know. Yep. So this AI chatbot, you know, chat GPT, whatever the platform is, that all use in, uh, uh, artificial intelligence are really problematic and worrisome. Often the technology gets out in front of the regulation of that technology. And so I'm concerned uh, for the, the anybody who's, who's involved in writing uh, that uh, intellectual property is threatened, you know? Uh, we know that with the, with the AI recently on these music videos where you have mm-hmm. one person's voice singing somebody else's song and it sounds perfect almost, you know? And so, so yes, this is a deep, deep, deep concern. And, uh, you know, as somebody who's, who's a supporter of union activism, I'm hoping that, that they can get this fixed and quickly, because as you know, you know, there are a lot of people that are going to be hurt by this, this, uh, strike, unfortunately, but, but, um, but, but it has to happen apparently. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. People, you know, maybe thinking this doesn't apply to them if they don't work in the entertainment industry or if they're not writers, but you'd be sorely mistaken to think that because this could impact all of us. I'm thinking about parking attendants, Dr. DeBinger. Remember them? Literally, yep. there used to be people that were in a kiosk and you would pay it. Now, most parking lots, you just go and stick your ticket in. It's automated. You never see a live human being. Uh, I'm going to date myself a little when I started my practicing as a lawyer, there used to be people called word processors, you know, that yeah. just did nothing but the type documents all gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, even legal secretaries now are not courier very, services. Courier services, legal yeah. secretaries are pretty much gone out of the legal profession. So, and that's one of the areas where they say these artificial intel- intelligence uh, platforms can really be used. Like all these briefs that lawyers have to write can be written through artificial intelligence, short of showing up in court and making the argument. But you know, you you are a hip hop artist. So that music piece, I'm sure, is something that you're concerned about. That Drake uh, you know, a video that went viral. What are you thinking about AI and how it's going to perhaps take over the music industry? 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, and we go back with AI, just look at the grocery stores and, and the automated registers. It's like two people working at these stores now, right? And so there's going to be more jobless people as we should have paid attention to it back then. Getting back to the music, I actually brought this up in my class because, you know, I teach a class on Jay-Z at American University. And I came in and I was like, yo, check out this Jay-Z track. And I started playing it. They were like, yo, that's hot. And I was like, that's not Jay-Z, it's AI. <laughs> and they could not believe it. And, you know, one of his, his, his colleagues who came up with him, you know, Guru, has been talking about this as it relates to intellectual property. But there's, there's it's, so you could have... Somebody create a Jay-Z song. You can have somebody create a song by Eminem and have it sing it to someone who loves Eminem for their birthday, right? Or I could create a flow like Jay-Z and then I can rap it in my own voice and pretend like I'm skilled like that, right? And so, but but back in the day, that money would go towards somebody who's a ghostwriter or a co-writer. And so on the intellectual level, in terms of intellectual property, it is very, very dangerous. And not just in music, there are these platforms where you can create art, you know, where I'm looking at people's art, these paintings and, and all of along. I thought these were things that were created, you know, with paintings or graphic design. But again, it's type in a few words that I think the website's called like Journey or something like that. And you get these amazing types of uh, works that are actually pulling from other types of visual arts throughout the centuries. And so that is, we are just in the beginning stages of this, Arif. And like Dr. Fontre said, we're often behind as it relates to this in terms of regulation. But if we don't get on this now, it's just a matter of time before we're just going to have more people who are out of work, which is going to be more people out in the streets, more people homeless and more crime. And we're already in a country riddled by gun violence and other things. We, we have have to look at that as a real connection. I'm not being too extreme when I bring that up, but people should have paid attention to it when it was coming for other careers before it started coming for them. Well, see, nobody cares if it doesn't impact them directly in that moment. So when That's those right. parking attendants were being laid off and wiped out, travel agents, mm -hmm. you know, word processors, all those jobs are going away. As long as we weren't doing it, we didn't think a whole lot about it. But the point here is that we're all interconnected. And That's right. What happens to one industry eventually is going to have an impact on us all. Uh, real briefly, both of you teach in universities and you raised this issue, Dr. Fonroy. How are you dealing with a, uh, a student that has to turn in a 20 page paper that now goes to this, you know, chatbot uh, GPT and says, write me a paper on African-Americans after the Civil War? And I mean, within minutes, seconds, yeah. it just spits out a whole term paper. Yeah, so there are some software applications that can allow you to check for some of this, but the truth is it's not enough. And mm -hmm. at some point it comes down to the sort of personal integrity of the individual. <laughs> oh, now, we understand, we understand that, there, that there are challenges there. There's no question about it. In fact, I just caught two students last week cheating on an exam, all right? Uh, and I want to tell you their names. How, how, did you catch the street like how, that. how did you catch them? With the software? No, no, no. I was with my own eyes. I'm literally watching them look down at their phone as mm. if I can't see what's going on. Right. I mean, it's just insane. So 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 this is a real this is a real issue, not just in academia, but for what these students do when they leave the academy. That's right. They may be leaving with degrees and maybe going into into positions that will require them to actually write or require them to actually think or to mm. actually do. And they won't be able to do it because they. Chat GPT right. their way through school. Yeah, and, and you know, let's go real big here, Dr. Dabinga. 
these robots, nuclear war, uh, mm-hmm. you know, secrets that countries have, security issues. I mean, this could, I mean, where does this end? It doesn't end. I mean, quite honestly, every time I see these stories, I just keep thinking of the Terminator movies. Right? I mean, that's that's really what it came down to. It started with this whole AI stuff. And then, you know, it made it be made us the robots started thinking that humans were the threat and then they took over. And so nothing is safe in any way, shape or form. And so I don't think that is too extreme to start thinking about military secrets. These chat bots there and GPTs are able to actually bypass passwords in various areas. It's getting smarter and smarter by the day. I mean, Siri on our phone, the things that everything that we're doing, we make it easier for AI to grow and develop every single day. And so we have to understand that when it comes to my students, I'm looking at different ways of, of giving assessments. I started introducing, you know, more oral examinations in class so they can be there (laughs) sitting with me. And, you know, we're having conversations in addition to some of the written work. I got to get up more on the software that that American University is using because they are using it. But even, you know, with that, I feel like AI is going to surpass that. And so we might always be like a year or two behind at these universities in terms of creating that type of stuff. And in a society that's becoming more dumbed down by the day, this is helping us become dumber faster. And as Dr. Fancho is saying, when people get out into the real world, they're going to have no skills. They already can't write checks, balance checkbooks, you know, writing like physical writing, like cursive, all of those things are gone. So this is just another thing that is going to reduce our intellectual capacity. And I'm very scared for the future as it relates to that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Somebody that works for me started sending me emails and I noticed automatically, I'm like, okay, this person doesn't write like this. Like they've worked for me like almost 10 years. I know their English. I know their grammar. It's, you know, slightly college level, but I started getting these really sophisticated, you know, compound, complex sentences. And someone else that works for the company said, yeah, they're using this chat box. I'm like, I knew it automatically because I'm looking at the person's writing and it's barely college passing. But it's really scary. We got to leave it here. Great conversation as usual. Thank you, Dr. Michael Fontroy. Thank you, uh, Professor Omikongo Dabinga. His new book, again, is Lies About Black People, How to Combat Racist Stereotypes and Why It Matters. Check it out. You can pre-order it today. It's on bookshelves everywhere books are found in July. Look forward to having you both back. Always good to see you, uh, my friends. When we come forward, we're going to be talking about Black babies being ripped out of the arms of their parents and placed in foster care. What's happening to our Department of Children and Family Services, and how are these parents fighting back? Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. After the Lakers game one victory over Golden State, LeBron has never lost a playoff series when his team has won the first game on the road. LeBron is 4-0 in that category in his Hall of Fame career. Just something to think about as the Lakers prepare for game two. Game two is Thursday night at 6 on ESPN. The Phoenix Suns are in trouble. They're down 0-2 to Denver and will have to play the next two or three games without Chris Paul. The veteran guard has a hamstring injury. Paul had an MRI exam today that revealed he needs extended rest and more treatment. The Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City kicked off a $25 million fundraising campaign today to help build a new facility. Bank of America stepped up to the plate and kicked in $1 million. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. More news, opinions, and conversation when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. We begin top story with late breaking news. Is it going to succeed, yes or no? I think it's going to succeed. It's going to succeed. KBLA Talk 1580 is about to celebrate its second anniversary on Juneteenth. And no terrible twos around here. Hello, 
We couldn't be more excited about all the good news we'll be announcing soon, including the launch of some new shows to keep giving you more of what you've been looking for. Come on! Smart Radio for Smart People. Hey, it's our celebration, but you get all the gifts. We'll be giving away fresh merch, swag bags, and a chance for you to join the private invitation only. Star-studded music and dance till you drop food and drink galore. Second anniversary celebration. To stay in the know about the second anniversary details, download the KBLA Talk 1580 app right now. Don't miss out on your chance to be a winner. At KBLA Talk 1580, when we come forward, we're bringing everybody with us. Happy anniversary, KBLA! House Democrats will try to force a vote on the debt ceiling. The government may not be able to pay its bills as soon as June 1st. If Congress doesn't allow the U.S. to borrow more money, it would cause economic catastrophe. Republicans want a debt limit increase tied to spending cuts. Democrats want to raise the debt ceiling, but without conditions, the same way that Congress did under President Donald Trump. The man accused of killing five neighbors in Texas was caught last night. The suspect was hiding in a house less than 20 miles from Cleveland, where the shooting happened on Friday. The family said deputies were slow to respond, and there were other early missteps in the investigation, like the misspelling of the suspect's name. Well, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates for the 10th time in just over a year and signaled that it will stop hoisting borrowing costs as the economy slows and fears of a recession grow. The Fed's latest move, announced at the end of its two-day policy meeting, brings the central bank's benchmark interest rate to a level between 5 and 5.25%, the highest level in 16 years. Saturday Night Live and other late-night shows have gone dark. It's the most immediate effect of the Hollywood writer's strike, which started yesterday. Writers are striking over pay, which they say has gotten worse in the streaming era, and other issues, including the use of AI to write scripts. Last month, Fox executives reviewed a text message that Tucker Carlson sent to his producers in early 2021. In the message, he described himself watching a video of Trump supporters beating up someone he referred to as, quote, an Antifa kid, end quote. Carlson wrote of his conflicting emotions, hinting that he had found himself rooting for the mob, hoping they would kill the man, and then asserted that jumping a guy like that is dishonorable because it's not how white men fight. Well, Fox became alarmed by this text message and was going to hire a law firm to investigate Carlson's behavior. And as they say in Hollywood, the rest is history. Representative Colin Allred, a Democrat from Texas, will challenge Senator Ted Cruz for his Senate seat in 2024. In a video posted to social media, Allred showed footage from the January 6th insurrection in which a pro-Trump mob overran the Capitol. On that day, Allred said he texted his wife to say, whatever happens, I love you. He slammed Cruz for voting against the certification of election results that day for hiding in a storage closet during the attack. Ben Vincent III, provost at Case Western University and former administrator to universities in D.C., was announced as Howard University's 18th president. Now, this is the uh, 18th president since the founding of the university after the Civil War. President Vincent will take the helm on September 1st after current president Wayne Frederick steps down. The new president will face many challenges, including 
securing $250 million in appropriations from Congress each year and addressing this male student shortage. 70% of Howard's 9,800 undergraduates were women. Well, prosecutors are nearing a decision on whether to charge President Biden's son, Hunter, with tax and gun-related violations. According to people familiar with the matter, the culmination of a four-year investigation that Republicans have sought to portray as evidence that the Biden family is corrupt. You are watching and listening to Ariva Martin in real time, and you're my host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is hour two, and in this hour, we're going deep on this deeply disturbing issue of Black children, and I mean infants and babies, being ripped away from their parents and placed into foster care. We're going to look at a story that happened in Dallas, Texas, involving a five-week-old baby that was taken from her home, uh, from her parents, and the fight that her parents had to wage in order to have their child reunited with them. Uh, Marsha Jones, the executive director of the Afaya Center in Texas, who worked very closely with this family, is here. She's going to help us understand uh, what happened in this case and just generally what is happening with the Department of Children's Services around the country and how Black children are being taken away from their parents. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. A black couple was reunited with their newborn taken by authorities over medical treatment. Authorities returned baby Mila to Tamisia and Rodney Jackson after nearly a month of protest. Uh, joining me in this hour is Marsha Johnson. She's the executive director of the Afaya Center, a Dallas-based reproductive justice organization that advocated for the family. Uh, welcome, Marsha. You and I have uh, been talking about this issue uh, now, seems like several years. So I'm so happy to have you on to help us understand what happened to this family. I know you were involved in advocating for them. So tell us uh, how baby Mila was taken from the family and how was she reunited with the family? So, uh, so that's Marsha Jones. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, and so, uh, it seemed that, uh, so the way this happened, so, so baby Mila was born, um, at home, uh, with a midwife and she was about three days old, three or four days old. And, uh, there was a little jaundice, um, which is natural. I mean, you look through anything it jaundice happened. This, this particular type of jaundice happened. And so, um, Tamisia took Mila to her doctor. Um, this, he had not like literally become Mila's doctor yet because she had not been discharged. You know, she had not had her postpartum, uh, meeting with her, uh, with her mid- midwife, but everybody there knew that the baby had jaundice. At some point of seeing the baby, the nurses, uh, the doctor's assistant said, hey, there's a little jaundice. Uh, the parents say, uh, so Misia said, yes, we know, but we're treating it according to the way the midwife, by that particular protocol, we're okay with it. We're moving, you know, we're just going to do what we have to do, uh, which is a protocol. And so later on, there was a phone call from the doctor 
Uh, and he like, I, you know, the baby has jaundice, her numbers are too high. Um, you need to take the baby to the hospital. They're like, we're working with our midwife. We're, we'll work with you too, but we're going to work with our midwife. We're willing to, you know, add some of your interventions into what we're doing. Um, so then he, I guess he calls back over and over again. She's just had a baby. She's asleep. Her husband is doing the stuff that he do. They miss the calls. He then calls and leave a message. If you, I have a bed for the baby at the hospital. If you don't take the baby to the hospital, I'm going to call CPS. Like that is literally what happened. Uh, the family had not did anything to cause something like this, a stir like this to happen. Over the next 24 hours, um, their, their home was, um, in, they, they were intruded upon by the DeSoto, Texas Police Department, along with Dallas County Sheriff's. Um, eventually, they, the hus her husband, uh, Mr. Jackson, had gone out. Upon returning, she was letting him know that they're at our home. He get home. He's wrestled down by police. They then take his keys from him, go and use his house keys to go into their house and take the baby. The problem here is that the documentation did not have. Wait, wait, wait a minute, Marcia. So the police, hold on a second, Marcia. The police, <laughs> I guess, get a search warrant or get some legal documentation that yeah. gives them the right to enter into the home of this couple. They go in the house. The father's not home, but the mom is home or the father's who's home? When the, the father, when they, when they came, the mother is home, but she didn't let them in. Right. And she calls and tell her husband because he had just gone to walk the dog. And he's, she's like, they're there. And he says, I'm on my way back. And when he get back, um, you know, he's like letting them know, you know, you I'm not going to like let you in my house. They wrestle him down and, and remove his house keys from his pocket and use those keys to go in the house. When they get there, she's saying, I need to see paperwork. I need to see paperwork. Their response is, give us the baby. We'll give you paperwork. When she get the paperwork, it actually had nothing on it. She went to the nearest police department to report this. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I, I know it sounds, it sounds it's, wild, but this it's is It's so it. bizarre. So the husband is outside on the ground. Yeah, they've now put him in the police car and, and taken him away from the house. Oh, he's gone. So that he's, he's gone now. Like he's all gone. this happened really quick. So he's gone. And After so the, they wrestle him down, take the keys. He's handcuffed, put in the car, gone. Then they come into the house because they have the keys. Right. Present some kind of documentation that's really not legal documentation because, as we found out that day, that the documentation did not have that mother nor that father's name on the documentation for this baby. Okay, so, so there's some generic right documentation. So, oh, it did have a, a name on it, but not the name but of not this, this couple. Family. It was not this couple. They didn't even know the people that was on the document. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so they, they weren't even at the right house? Clearly, they were. So clearly, they were, I, I guess I would say they were at the right house because that's where the doctor sent them. It just wasn't the right name. Wow. Like they didn't have any idea who these people were. And I don't I won't call that particular woman's name right. because that's right. not fair to her, you right. know, to keep putting her name out here because she didn't ask to be in this either. Okay. And so there was another woman's name on there. There was another man's name on there as the father. They, the family there had no idea who these people were. But now here's the thing, Ariva. They didn't learn this until a, a, almost the next day. So this woman's baby was gone for a whole day and she did not know where her baby was at. 
Okay. <laughs> I'm just and trying to collect. I, this story is so wild. It's like, it is really it wild. It's on TV. So they, they show her some paperwork and she's like, I'm not Betty. I'm just going, you know, hypothetically, I'm not <laughs> Betty. That paperwork, originally, that paperwork didn't even have a name. Okay. So there's no name. So right. she, and she they said, this is legitimate. Uh -huh. But they take the baby out of her, her arms? Yes. They, she, the baby, they get the baby and they leave with the baby. And she's not even sure where they're taking the baby. So that's that's her, do she, they tell her, look, we're taking no, the baby to the police station? They don't say we're going to CPS. They don't say any of that. But they do. They, I guess they tell them that CPS, they're CPS or they're Dallas County. And they come and get the baby. So she don't know. She go to the DeSoto Police Department. And they're acting like they don't have anything to do with it. At that point, she's calling her midwife also. And so when she called the midwife, the midwife then called us, the citizen. Um, she's calling our doulas or whatever. Um, that's, and so we kind of got in it right there. But in all honesty, Reba, I really thought that that baby had been returned because we did the paper. We, we did the groundwork. We were like, the baby is at CPS. One of our doulas call one of the people that she know that work at CPS. So we, we're thinking everything is okay. We've not spoken with the birth, with the um, midwife anymore. That following Monday, so now the baby's been gone about five days. Oh, wait, 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 mm wait. -hmm. What, what day of the week does this happen on? They get the baby on a Tuesday. The baby and is born on a third on a Thursday. Okay. And so that the baby is not Tuesday, even a week old. Not even a week old. Not even and a week old. Is the 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 people who take the baby out the house are they the police department or are they workers from the child protective services? Do you know? They are they are they are workers from child protective services. No, they were Dallas County. They were Dallas County sheriffs. Oh, sheriff. Okay, Dallas County sheriff. Right. Okay. Um, and so we get a call back, and so I get a call. You know, over in the night, there's another another young act, act, activist here, and he like Miss Marsha. There's a thing going on. And as he started to tell the story, I jump up and I said, oh, my God, that's the same baby that we were just working with last week. You telling me that baby is not home. He said, no, the baby is not home. And that's where the that's where we really we got all the way involved in it. We called the family to let the family know who we were and that we wanted to work with them to get this baby home and to hold CPS accountable for what they had done. And so that's where the videos, I mean, the, the press conference that people um, seen, that's probably the statement that you saw, because I really did not, I think you're probably the first person that I have spoken to uh, about it because I wanted to make sure that this family story was told and that it was not kind of mixed into the, the, the myriad of things that we do here at the AFIA Center. And I didn't want it to become an AFIA Center story. I wanted people to know that this is happening in CPS way too often. Because um, if it happened to this family, right. this family, I mean, if we want to say, quote unquote, this is a young Black family who lives in a middle class Black uh, suburb. I mean, I live around the corner from them. Not that I'm saying anything about it, but that's yeah. where they live. They 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 uh, they're professional people. Um, he's a coach in the community. Uh, you know, they had been with this doctor for 12 years with their boys. Um, they did so, research. Wait a minute. So to, they the doctor that called them to say we have a bed for the baby. That was not their regular physician, right? Yes, he was. He had been the he had been their children's um, pediatrician. They have two other boys and he's been their pediatrician for 12 years. So he knows his family. 
Wow. And he know this family. And so um, this was just like one of the most horrendous things I've ever seen. And I can't I wish we could find a, a, a reason and not speculation, especially on the doctor's behalf of how this happened. Because even when I repeat this story to people, everybody wants to stop and say, no, wait, no, I'm telling you, this is exactly what happened. She had a baby at home, a VBAC, or she had had two previous cesareans. She had a baby at home with a midwife that she had did all of the research. Um, she had did her work. The midwife didn't just pop up. Um, they had had this midwife since she was uh, eight weeks uh, gestation. They had worked with her because, of course, she had had um, uh, two uh, cesareans. So you want to make sure when you're going to do a vaginal birth after cesarean that everything is right. And so this midwife had worked with this family for six months, for six months. This was not an overnight thing. Um, this family, this, this family chose their own birth team. So the birth workers at the Afield Center was not the doulas. This family chose their own birth team, chose their own midwife, had a relationship with the midwife. They felt safe with the midwife. And it was an amazing birth. Do you think this could be a part... Is this backlash from the healthcare system because they had a baby in their home with a midwife rather than a what I'll call more traditional delivery in a hospital with a doctor? I believe so. I, I believe that it's, it's larger than I believe it's larger than just this particular baby and this particular midwife. I think that it is absolutely a backlash and especially against black birth workers and black midwives. Um, I don't see this as no different than 40, 50 years ago uh, or more with what happened to granny midwives when we had black women delivering babies, caring for families, not just their families, but white families included and uh, white doctors wanted to be able to control that and started to um, over um, certify and all of these other things and over medical, all of these things, medical certifications or whatever that these black men, these black uh, granny midwives did not, not have um, to um, over time move them out of this work, this, this work that they had been doing for so long, cultural work. I mean, you can do history on black granny midwives where there were no deaths, there was no deaths from the mothers, the babies, uh, they were doing exceptional work. And then there was a time that we had no black midwifery in the black community, it was mm -hmm. gone. And so now in an effort to save black lives, black women who are birthing, because we know what the, what the data looks like for black women who are birthing, especially in these hospitals, um, black midwives, we're, we're coming back, we're reclaiming all right, and, and and being part of this birth world so that we can save black women's lives. And I do think that that's exactly, and that as it relates to the midwife, I right. do think that that's exactly what happened. As it relates to the baby and the family, I believe it is the same thing that's happening inside of CPS um, systemically all across, not just Texas, where black babies are just, they're taken and snatched away from black families with no uh, due process. Mm -hmm. With absolutely no due process, because even if they took this baby home because the baby's billy, billy ribbon was so high with the jaundice was, was in such a bad state. Clearly, that could not have been that because they from our understanding, the baby did go to the hospital the day that they that they removed her. But the baby came home the same day. So, clearly so wait a minute, the, the baby, the, hold on a second. The, the day the mom. Home. Okay. Not home. The baby went back to child protective service. So when they took the baby, 
They did take the baby to the hospital to be treated okay. for the jaundice. But if the jaundice was as bad as they said that it was, why did the baby not even stay in the hospital overnight? The baby was immediately released back to Child Protective Services. So that could not have been the reason for taking right. that baby because the jaundice clearly was not that severe. Do you know why the uh, parents, when they went to the doctor with the baby and the doctors called and said, bring the baby to the hospital uh, for the jaundice, do you know why the parents opted not to do that? It just really was just light. Um, we're, we're talking about a woman who's just three three days out of a birth, a long birth, home birth. She's sleeping. She's just doing exactly what mothers do after they've delivered. Her husband wasn't at home and they literally could just missed some phone calls. Oh, wait, wait, they, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Marcia. So you're saying the family wasn't necessarily adverse to taking the baby back to the hospital. They had not had an opportunity to communicate with the doctor about the need right. to go back when, to the hospital. And when they did talk to the doctor, they were clear, okay, this is what the midwife said we're going to do. And so we will also include what you're saying doing. Because she's, she's, she breastfed the baby. He said, well, the baby needs a formula to help build up more bile. She said, we're willing to do that. They were also willing to, they, they'd already ordered the stuff like the, the blanket that you put the baby in uh, with their skin, putting the baby in the sun. So they were willing to, they still wanted to use their midwife's um, mitigation for the for this for this condition, but they were going to do work with the doctor. So we didn't necessarily want to give her um, um, formula, but we will. We're mm -hmm. going to work with you on this, and if it don't clear up, we will bring her in. So this family was never against uh, you know medical intervention for their baby. They just were going to. Go with what they're go with the intervention that their midwife suggested, and the doctor himself said that that is like a recommended intervention for uh, for jaundice. So for those so people, the, Marshall, maybe that don't know, so a midwife does more than just help deliver a baby. The midwife is also there after the baby is born to give uh, advice on things that may happen to the baby during the birth process. Right. And the midwife stays on and, and provides postpartum care. And the midwife will typically discharge the mom and the baby from postpartum care probably about three to four days after the baby is born. Just like if you're in a hospital and you're right. discharged and then your baby goes to see its pediatrician. The same thing with a midwife. The midwife mm -hmm. will treat will, will stay with the family for three or four days. And then discharge. And after discharge, that family will usually take will usually take the baby to their um, to their to their uh, uh, pediatrician or a suggested pediatrician. Yeah. When we come forward, Marsha, I want to talk about what it took in terms of your advocacy, your organization's advocacy to help get this baby reunited uh, with her mom and her dad, and what's happening all over the country with babies that are taken away, particularly for those families that don't have access to advocates like yourself. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I am back with Marsha Jones. She's the executive director of the Afeya Center in Texas. It's a reproductive justice center. She and her organization have been uh, advocates for a family whose baby was taken away over what appears to be just a misunderstanding about the baby's care. 
baby was uh, taken and placed in Child Protective Services. So, Marsha, talk to us about what your agency did once you got that phone call from that young activist who said, you know, there's this baby that's been taken from a family and we need your help. How did your agency uh, get involved and what did you do? So uh, so we immediately uh, reached out to the family. Well, we reached out to the midwife uh, because that was our initial contact with the family. Um, to let the uh, family know that we were there because, again, we were not familiar with this family prior to. Had this not happened, this this we would never have come in contact with this family. And so we reached out to the midwife uh, to let her know that, you know, that we this information had fallen back into our hands again. Could she connect us with the family or would the family be willing to talk to us and see, you know, what comes mm-hmm. next? And so that's what we did. We called the family, um, the other young activists who uh, this picture here is that original of uh, that's the original uh, press press conference. And once we got with the family, they were they were like they were just so happy that relieved that somebody was going to hear them because they were at literally at their wits end. And so we started to do what we do as advocates. At the same time, we were collecting information and data from them, information from them. We were on the phone. We were making phone calls. We were talking to our legislators. You know, when you're advocates, we all have that one legislator that's our friend, you know, that we can pick up the call. Here in Dallas, for us, is Representative Tony Rose. Mm. Even though this was not in Representative Rose's district, I immediately called her because I didn't know what else to do. And I called Representative Rose to say, to say to ask her, did you know that this was going on? She didn't. She said, Marsha, just let me get to my home from my office and I will get back with you. So we started on that end. Uh, we were making sure that they had spoken with their representatives. And I tell you, they had and their representative, their representative didn't was nobody was responding. And so we then sounded the alarm. We asked them, we we actually did what we do with anything. How do you all want to proceed with this? Because we've got to act on this and we've got to act hard. And so uh, they gave us permission to then start to tell, um, talk about your story. So we got our, um, we brought our communications team in, um, our communications team talked with this family. We gathered this information again, still gathering the information, making sure that we had the right information before we struck. And that's when we came together and and organized this press conference. We organized a press conference in a matter of about 18 hours. We had press out. Um, at the same time, we were organizing the press uh, conference. Our communications team was hitting the uh, the social media, Twitter, um, Facebook, all every social media that we could hit. We were running this. We ran this story live simultaneously. At the same time, the press release was happening. We were releasing it live. And so we were just hitting everywhere. And that's what happened. I'm going to tell you, Black people did what I know Black people will do. When that story hit, Black people were livid. They started calling. They, I mean, I, I'm I'm kind of like this old school person with this social media, and I hear people saying stuff like Black Twitter and all of that. Well, let me tell you something. <laughs> I got my first experience with Black Twitter. Let me tell you. And so we we realized the reason that people did this is because we know that this is their story also. And so many people were able to identify with this story, but also 
so many birth workers, black birth workers were able to, and even white birth workers thought that this was insane because this type of uh, jaundice is, is just very natural for babies. And so all of this information was being put on social media. We were constantly calling. We were on the phone with CPS. We were on the phone with the um, with the um, legislators. What was? We were on I want to say, Marshall. What was CPS saying? Like what? They kept telling. They they were like, we can't talk about it. We can't talk about it. We were like, but the, but the problem here, y'all do realize that the name on this document is not this family's. So they didn't even. Well, hold on, Marsha. Let, let's step back. We were talking about the document in the early part of the segment. How did you finally get the document? Because at first you said when they showed up at the house, the document they had had no right. names on it. No so names. All right. So now there's a document with some name, even though it's the wrong name. How did you get that document? So we got that document. The family had, um, they'd gotten an attorney. And so that's how they got that document. And it's pretty much open records anyway. And so they were able to get that document. And that's when we start pushing. This is not the right name. This is right, not the right name. And it was just the responses that we were getting was like something I'd never heard before. Like one of the people we spoke with and uh, we, not we, but the family spoke with in um, Child Protective Services were like, well, we know the name is not right. That's not a big deal. We can fix the name later. Mm -hmm. Okay. I thought that if it's illegal, but anyway, I'm not a lawyer. I don't play one on TV. <laughs> okay, uh, but they were like, uh, name no big It's not a big deal. And so we knew we had them right there, though, because every attorney that we spoke to said, look, this was supposed to stop right there. If the right name was not on that document, this document is not legal. So we, we were pushing all of the information that we were getting um, Attorneys from everywhere started coming in, but this all happened because of social media, um, because they uh, they trusted our organization to hold their story. Mm -hmm. We didn't gatekeep their story, but we did hold their story because yeah. we knew that this family was not prepared to do all of these interviews. They wanted their child back. Right. Um, the baby was not faring very well in child protective services. Hold on a second, Marshall. So I know you said when you were talking to them, they were like, we can't talk about it. We can't talk about it. But would they talk to the parents about where the child was being held? They talked to the parents about what? Where the child was at. Like, where was the child well, physically? So so the child, so of course, because the child was with a foster family, they, of course, they didn't have the physical address. So they would let them, they, they only could visit the baby one day a week for two hours. And that was at the Child Protective Service Office. So at the state, at like a county office. So this baby is five days old. Yes, ma'am. Maybe not even a week. Not in the week. home of some stranger, yes. away from her mom. She's mom, not able to nurse, not able to cuddle, yes. not able to bond. All those right. important first moments mm -hmm. in a stranger's house, home. Yes. And they have to go visit their own infant at some center for two yes. hours. Yes. Well, with people had, watching them, of course. Oh, my God. This had to be so traumatic for this young. It was These very people, traumatic. Young family. What? I think I read the mom's about 38 or so. Yes. Young family. And I'm going to tell you, it was just it was so hard wrenching um, to even be able to move through this every day. Uh, they would come and sit with us and we would work with them. I know, I think one night we even invited her to come in and do yoga with us, you know, it's like, 
come do yoga, you know, just like the birth workers here at the Afield Center are phenomenal. And they were able to really work with her, even, you know, encouraging her to keep breast, keep pumping, keep pumping, right. you know, just keep, just keep moving. But yeah, so they what, can only what, what was Child Protective Service, Marsha, saying to the families about why they couldn't take the baby home? But they said we had to go through a court process. They had now? to go to court. They, yeah, we've, we've got to go to court. You know, we, we're going to go to court. We have to go to court and we have to determine if this baby can come home. Like not even acknowledging that you all have the wrong people. Wow. So there, when we come forward, Marsha, we want to talk about this whole court process. Was there an actual court hearing? What happened at that hearing? And again, what was the catalyst for CPS to let this child come home? Uh, Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, Marsha, how long does this ordeal last? So the ordeal lasts um, three weeks. Three weeks. This baby, five-day-old yes. baby is out of her home, middle-class home, Black professional parents, good upstanding citizens, parents to two other children. So obviously they know how to parent a child because they're already parenting successfully two other kids. Uh, what happens in this five weeks and what was the catalyst to bring this baby home? Um, so I believe it was definitely pressure from the community um, because the pressure was going like the pressure. We once we put the pressure on because they did go to court. No, let's stop. There was a hearing. There was a hearing. Um, I believe the hearing was don't want to get my dates wrong. But I think the hearing was something like April the 4th or something like that. And so the hearing was online. It was 30. It was supposed, it was supposed to start at 830. So all of the advocates and people are getting ready to get on. The Miss um, Miss Jackson is on uh, early because she don't want to miss it. They're they're talking about attorneys and they're talking about different things. And so Miss Jackson says, "Well, my attorney is trying to get on now." The judge responds, "What attorney? I didn't know that you had an attorney. I had already uh, there was already court appointed attorneys or something to that nature." Miss Jackson was then kicked off the phone. She came back on, and within like three or four minutes, and this is like maybe. Five minutes before 8.30, the judge comes on and says, we're going to reschedule the case. We're going to reschedule this to the 20th of uh, of April. Like, mm. how do you counsel court before court even starts? Mm. And so then later on, the judge, when it's so they're asking for an emergency hearing, right. the judge denies the emergency hearing. She says, well, I've already we've already had a hearing and I've already heard everything I need to hear. No, we absolutely did not have a hearing. You canceled it five minutes before it was supposed to start. And so there was really no, 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 um, no due process has happened here. So there really was not a hearing. And so the hearing was supposed to be the 20th. And the baby, of course, was released the day before the hearing. But I believe, but once that happened, we asked the family again. We were kind of like stepping back a little bit because we didn't want to put too much pressure because they do have your baby. So the family said, yeah, put the pressure on. We want our baby home. So we were we had people coming from everywhere. We was putting the pressure everywhere. We did a rally at the courthouse. uh, I mean, at the child protective services on the day that they went to see one of the days that they went to see their baby. 
just to let them see this, this support and to let the, the CPS know that we're not right. backing up off of this. Right. And so um, I believe that it definitely was the pressure. So um, the district attorney says that so we, we're kind of like up and down as to what happened. So there is one story where, the, where we get that the district attorney's office called the Jacksons and said, we're going to drop this case. Come and get your baby. Then it's like the district attorney called back and said, no, I didn't call you all. Well, we know you yourself, John Cruzo, didn't call. Right. <laughs> it was somebody in your office. It's neither here nor there. The, it was your decision as the DA to drop this case, and it was dropped. It should have been dropped before then, but it wasn't. So I believe it was the direct pressure from the community. Um, I believe it was the calling um, for um, this judge seat. Uh, we even went so far to reach out to her fraternity. She, she's, uh, what is it, a D9, a D12? I'm not, I don't know what divine it is. Divine Nine. Divine Nine. The Divine nine. nine. We mm -hmm. even reached out. We were like, that's your sister sitting on the bench. Can you talk to her? You know, like we were not, we were pulling, we, we were pulling all the punches. Um, we were calling other judges. We, we were like, election is coming up. You know, like we're not going to stop. You know, we even called our own state legislator, the newly elected uh, judgment. I mean, ju I mean, Representative Jasmine, uh, Jasmine Crockett. We called her. You know, it's like, yeah, we, we're not like that's that's to the level that we took this. We literally did not stop. We were calling every step. We were going higher and higher. Mar so, Marshall, what was the case? Was the case that they were refusing to provide adequate medical care? Like what what were they saying the family was doing that? created a danger to the child. That, that was it. That, that, that they said that the family refused to um, provide adequate, kind of like medical care to the baby, but the family never refused. Mm -hmm. Never yeah. refused. Well, this story has a very, very happy ending. I know you very told happy. me that you had an opportunity to see is baby Mila, right? Yes, baby Mila. <laughs> that baby Mila was in your office. So tell us about baby Mila. Let's end this segment on oh. something positive. <laughs> oh, my. So uh, I thought I was going to miss her because uh, they text me. I was trying to get my nails done. And they said, well, family's coming up today. And they just want to, like, thank you. Because once, once they got the baby, we stepped back. We wanted them to be able to do that. And so we get here, and I'm just like, oh, my God. And I'm already like a great-grandmother anyway. So it's like all the Googles and Gagas. And she's talking. Like, she's looking at us and following. And then we go to the other side and let the rest of the staff know that baby Milo is here and everybody is coming over and we just feel like one big family and to see the look on this family's face the dad is standing there right and he's just standing there so proud like this is i'm a i get to be a, a dad's a, a, a girl's dad you know because right. he wanted a girl so bad and the mother is sitting there you know and she's just so overjoyed but here's the thing they are so overjoyed to have that baby but they are still in the fight because they don't want to see this. They don't want to see this ever happen again to another family. So while they are happy to have baby Mila home with them and they're so excited, they want the world to know that they are still in the fight. They're not walking away just because they got Mila back. Um, her the dad has said that even at one of the press conferences, he said. We're not going to stop here. He said, because what we see every time we came to see our baby was countless of families. And he even he said, black, white, whoever sitting in this space, 
with their children taken from them. And we don't know if it was just the unjust because our baby was unjustly taken from us and somebody else's baby could have been too. He said, so we're still in the fight. We're not going anywhere. We're going to fight that this don't keep happening to other babies and other families. Yeah. And I know, Marsha, one of the articles that I read, as you said, the social media, the media outcry on this was amazing in the way that you all were able to galvanize the media. So kudos to you as an advocate in your organization. Uh, because we know that's how you get the attention oftentimes of elected officials, of our judicial system. You need that kind of media pressure. So, so important. Uh, one of the articles I read about the story, you said you believe it was systemic racism. Explain what you mean by that. Definitely believe it's systemic racism because we all we know that black children are taken from from families at a much higher rate than any other uh, families. We know that black Black mothers are denied the right to parent their children on very small things. Most of the time, it's, it, it is not even a, a, a thing that they've done so horribly wrong. It may be just the fact that they don't have enough money to be able to provide some of the things that the system said that they're supposed to provide, where the system is prepared to give money to somebody to take my child, but not prepared to give me the resources to take care of my child. And so just if, all you have to do is go and look at the data that show the number of black children that are removed from their homes with absolutely no due process and the numbers do not match. It's like when we talk about maternal mortality, it is definitely racism. Um, it is definitely because we are black that we are allowed to die. So it is definitely because we are black that um, we are not denied. We are denied the opportunity to parent in a way that we know how to parent that is absolutely nourishing for our children. Yes, there are instances is across the board where some bad decisions have been made for children and let's be what we need for those children but don't be so quick to just remove black children from black homes and it's just done at too high of a rate and but child protective services everywhere are a mess and again like i said there's no due process done here no, you, you raise such a great point, and you're right. It's well documented that Black children are disproportionately represented in foster care systems around this country, and all too often they're in those systems not because there was neglect and abuse in the home, but because the system is set up in a way that it does not honor or recognize the cultural norms, the differences that Black parents often have in terms of raising children. And yes, we need CPS to be there when kids are in crisis and when families are in crisis and you need some temporary help to get a child in a safe space. But all too often, as you also said, Marcia, Black children are taken away from families in situations that are absolutely illegal and unjustified. And I can't think of a, 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 you know, a better example of that than this case, this middle-class, hardworking family, loving family, mother and father of two children to have their five-day-old daughter taken away from them when they were not refusing, as you said, medical care, but just seemingly a simple misunderstanding that could have been cleared up. But what this tells us is once your child is in the system, it is not easy getting a child out of the system. This took, as you said, almost five weeks uh, for something that should have taken, it best should have taken overnight. This child should have been reunited with her parents. Thank God for the AFIA a center in Texas. Thank God for reproductive health centers because you all serve such an important and critical need uh, in communities around this country. I'm so grateful to you for the advocacy on this case and so many other cases. You've been on the front line. You and I have been at this for a while now talking about the battles uh, that you have been engaged in making sure that Black women in particular have reproductive freedoms and, and rights. So I'm so grateful to you and thanks for joining. 
me and uh, we'll keep up with baby Mila uh, as she Please is do. with we're her gonna, family. We're going to hear about baby Mila for a long time coming. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Again, thank you, Marsha, for joining me. Thank the next you. voice that you hear is Robin Ayers and the Rye Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.